Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Helen Maddox was born in Texas on May 26, 1947, and went by Holly. She graduated salutatorian of her high school in 1965 and moved to Philadelphia to attend Bryn Mawr College, where she earned an English degree in 1971. She was described as creative, smart, and beautiful. At the age of 30, Holly had been in a five-year relationship with her boyfriend, political activist Ira Einhorn, who was also a graduate of Bryn Mawr College. At one point, he was even a student at the University of Pennsylvania, where he became active in ecological groups and was part of the counterculture, anti-establishment, and anti-war movements of the 1960s and 1970s. He spoke at the first Earth Day event in Philadelphia in 1970 and liked to proclaim himself the father of Earth Day. Einhorn served as an instructor of English at Temple University during the 1964 to 1965 academic year. However, his contract was not renewed after he was caught during an interview boasting about giving cannabis and LSD to students. In 1977, Holly broke up with Einhorn and moved to Fire Island, New York. On September 9th, Holly went to gather her belongings from the apartment they shared after he allegedly threatened to discard them onto the street. Sadly, Holly was never seen alive again. Several weeks later, the police questioned him about Holly's whereabouts. He claimed she had gone to the neighborhood co-op to buy some tofu and bean sprouts and never returned. After Holly went missing, Einhorn's neighbors began complaining about a foul smell coming from his upstairs apartment as well as a brown liquid staining the ceiling and oozing down their walls. On March 28, 1979, two years after Holly went missing, a homicide detective searched Einhorn's apartment and found her mummified body inside a trunk in the closet. She had been there for the last two years. After his arrest, his defense attorney, Arlen Specter, who would later become a U.S. senator, managed to get him out on bail. He was bonded out by a woman named Barbara Bronfman, who had married into the wealthy Bronfman family. The two knew each other through a shared interest in the paranormal. In 1981, just two weeks before his murder trial was set to begin, Einhorn skipped bail and fled to Europe and became an international fugitive for the next 23 years. He started in Ireland, where he became Eugene Mallon, He then went to Sweden, where he married a Swedish woman named Annika Floden, and he finally ended up in the Charente region of France near Bordeaux. Barbara supported him in his endeavors financially until 1988, when she read Stephen Levy's damning book on Einhorn, The Unicorn's Secret. His nickname, The Unicorn, was derived from his Jewish-German surname, which means one horn. 
At that point, Barbara told the private investigator working for Holly's family to look for Einhorn with a wealthy Swedish woman named Annika Floden. As Einhorn had already been arraigned in Pennsylvania, the state convicted him in absentia of Holly's murder in 1996, and he was sentenced to life in prison. However, the French don't recognize trials in absentia, so an undercover FBI agent befriended Einhorn to ensure that he didn't disappear again and began working to get him arrested and extradited back to the U.S. French police raided his house, fingerprinted him, and confirmed his true identity. They held him for a bit, but then let him return to his old mill house, pending extradition proceedings. Later, he was finally extradited to the United States after several years of legal battles between France and the U.S. Once the trial began, he took the stand in his own defense, claiming Holly had been killed by CIA agents who had framed him for the crime because he knew too much about the agency's paranormal military research. Some reports say that he blamed the CIA due to his investigations into the Cold War and psychotronics. Regardless, on October 17, 2002, 25 years after he was accused of the crime, a jury convicted Einhorn a second time, and the following day, he was sentenced to a mandatory life term without the possibility of parole. Sadly, while Einhorn was on the run, Holly's father took his own life, and her mother died of an illness. On April 3, 2020, Einhorn died of natural causes behind bars. In 2014, 50-year-old Uva Rushing was a father of two boys, 14-year-old Stefan and 18-year-old Thorsten. Uva worked as a Southwestern Oklahoma State University youth counselor and lived with his sons at 1116 Northwest Columbia Avenue in Lawton, Oklahoma, between Wichita Falls and Oklahoma City. Uva had taken care of the boys alone since their mother, LaVon Bynum, allegedly fell into a cycle of drug abuse about nine years earlier. Stefan was in the eighth grade at Central Middle School in Lawton, where he was a chess club and science club member and was selected to be a National Junior Honor Society member. He talked about becoming a professional soccer player, starting his own rock band, or possibly becoming a pharmacist. Meanwhile, he enjoyed hunting, fishing, rappelling, playing guitar, soccer, and hanging out with friends and family. On January 17, 2014, Uva was going out his back door when he encountered a man in a black hoodie. The man ran and scaled a fence as Uva drew his pistol, which he carried for self-defense, but he never took a shot at the unidentified person. Uva believed that his ex-wife, Lavon, might have been responsible for the man in his backyard. She had been trying to re-establish contact with her sons, but had been threatening Uva since their divorce because he had custody. However, police interviewed her, and she denied the accusations. Three days later, on January 20, 2014, right after 2 a.m., Thorsten called 911 to report that an intruder had broken to his home and shot his father and younger brother. Thorsten said he had fallen asleep in the living room while watching TV when two masked intruders wearing surgical booties, caps, and masks entered the home. He told police that the two men were African-American and that one of them was armed. He said that after the shooting, he chased them away by firing his shotgun at them. 
However, later on, he would strangely change his story and say that the intruders were white and Hispanic. There were also other suspicious circumstances surrounding the shooting, such as the shotgun story, which investigators concluded didn't match the evidence and bullet trajectories. Thorsten also said that the gunman was running through the house firing his weapon, but the police never noticed anything knocked over or out of place. In the hours after his dad and brother were killed, Thorsten described Uva to the police as a good father, but as police interviewed Thorsten's friends, his story began to unravel. Three days later, on the day of Uva's funeral, Thorsten was arrested along with 19-year-olds Ethan Thompson and Cody Davis, 18-year-old Timothy Delahoy, and 17-year-old Wesley Bankston. All five of them initially pleaded not guilty. Turns out, the murder weapon was the 9mm that Uva was carrying on the night he encountered the intruder in his backyard. That intruder turned out to be Cody Davis, and they had planned on Davis waiting at the back door for Thorsten to shoot Uva and Stefan, hand him the gun, and then drive away with Delahoy. But Uva saw Davis as he went outside and pulled out a pistol, scaring him away. After the failed attempt, Davis and Delahoy backed out and didn't want anything to do with the murder plot. But Ethan Thompson and Wesley Bankston didn't back out and instead assisted with the homicides three days later. Thompson and Bankston were both charged with first-degree murder, and even though Davis and Delahoy backed out, they were charged with being an accessory after the fact. Thompson, Davis, and Delahoy confessed to their involvement and police said they believed Thorsten was the lone shooter. Police said Thompson hid in a closet for hours until the shooting was carried out and then took the 9mm and left the scene with Bankston driving. Davis told police that a week or two before, Thorsten had shot video of the inside of the home to show him how to enter the house, find Stefan and Uva, and assist in the killings. Thorsten shot his father first before shooting his younger brother. However, Stefan didn't die immediately, and so Thorsten smothered him to death. Thorsten and Thompson then allegedly fired shots into a wall to make it look like someone had broken into the home. Investigators also discovered Thorsten's motive in the case. Apparently, he wanted to receive his father's life insurance policy when he turned 18. In the end, Thompson and Bankston pleaded guilty to murder and are now serving life in prison. Davis pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and Delahoy was sentenced to five years in prison for being accessories after the crime. In 2016, Thorsten was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. His lawyer immediately appealed, but the jury's ruling was upheld in 2019. Farah Titiana Carter was born on September 10, 1986. At the age of 15, Farah was a student at Hollandale Adult Community Center and lived with her mother, Kim Battle, and two sisters at home in the 6500 block of Southwest 27th Street in Miramar, Florida. Her relatives said she was a daddy's girl who aspired to attend beauty school or own a restaurant. On May 22, 2002, Farah's mother came home to find her daughter in her bedroom with multiple stab wounds. There was also a large amount of blood found in the living room. 
Soon after her death, investigators said Farah had fought for her life and had inflicted a considerable amount of harm to her killer, causing him to bleed all over the crime scene. During the struggle, a chair was knocked over in the living room, a glass jar was broken on the floor, and a couch was pushed against the window blinds. Blood was also found on the walls and the bedspread in her mother's bedroom. A neighbor who lived across the street told police that he saw a male of average build wearing a hat and driving a white van which stopped at the Carter's home on the morning of the murder. He said the man stood outside the front door talking to Farah, trying to get her to let him inside before he ultimately left. However, with no signs of a forced entry, investigators believe she may have known her attacker. Sadly, the case would go cold for the next 18 years because, at the time, authorities couldn't match the blood left at the scene to any suspects. In 2019, the DNA Analysis Unit at the Broward Sheriff's Office conducted DNA testing on a blood sample found on Farah's bedroom door. Those results led them to suspect 56-year-old Joseph Pollard, who had an extensive history of violence against women. Since 2004, Pollard had been serving a life sentence at the Taylor Correctional Institution in Perry, Florida, for kidnapping, burglary with assault, and robbery with a deadly weapon of another victim, which occurred only two months after Farah's brutal murder. The authorities also compared DNA on a hat that police found on the hallway floor at the crime scene, which also matched Pollard. According to police, he denied knowing Farah or any of her family members. He also claimed he didn't recognize any photos of the home where the murder took place. Pollard was ultimately indicted on a first-degree murder charge. Since he didn't know the Carter family, investigators are still searching for answers as to what led him to the killing. Carolyn Cox Rose was born on March 29, 1931, in Milledgeville, Georgia, and moved to Pensacola, Florida when she was around 27 years old. Carolyn was the vice president for Better Homes, Inc. and a real estate agent in the Pensacola area. She was described as an independent woman who was gung-ho about her job, and they said she could sell ice cubes to an Eskimo. On April 7, 1978, 27-year-old Carolyn left her office around 8.30 a.m. and told her assistant that she had an appointment to show the property at 2688 Highway 297A to a potential buyer. After leaving the office, Carolyn was never seen alive again. By 2 p.m., when Carolyn had not arrived back at the office, her co-workers became very concerned, so they drove to her last known location and discovered her 1977 Chevrolet Caprice Classic parked at the property. After entering the ranch-style home, they tragically found Carolyn's deceased body lying face-up on the empty bedroom floor. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Slices of her blouse had been used to bind her hands behind her back and tie her legs. Her son, Pat, who was 24 at the time, had to be sedated after learning of his mother's murder. Investigators were divided about the nature of the crime, with some assuming it had been a spur-of-the-moment slaying, while others observed a crime scene that could have only come from meticulous planning. The authorities began looking into a man from New York who had been in the Pensacola area looking to buy a home at the time of Carolyn's killing. However, they never found enough evidence to make an arrest, and he was eventually cleared as a suspect. 
local real estate agents quickly gathered a $5,000 reward for information on her killer. However, despite media coverage and rewards for information, a suspect was never arrested, and sadly, the case would go unsolved for the next 42 years. That is, until advances were made in DNA testing, and thankfully, the Escambia County Sheriff's Office still had the DNA evidence from 1978. The DNA was sent to Parabon Nanolabs, who were able to create a DNA profile that could be used for genetic genealogy. This led them to suspect Julius William Hill Jr., who had died years earlier while serving a 30-year sentence in Victorville, California, for two bank robberies. Terrence Leslie Paquette was born on October 1, 1964, in Keene, New Hampshire, and went by Terry. At the age of 31, Terry was living in Orlando, Florida, and working at the Little Champ convenience store on Clarkona Ocoee Road. He was relatively new to Orlando, working about 60 hours a week, and would typically arrive at Little Champ daily between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. to open the store. On February 3, 1996, around 7 a.m., Herbert Soley, a regular passerby, noticed the lights were not on inside Little Champ as usual. He said he tried the door, but it was still locked, and he couldn't see anyone inside. So he drove off and continued to the Rosemont Country Club, but had a nagging suspicion that something was wrong and decided to call the Orange County Sheriff's Office. When a deputy arrived at the store, two employees of an armored car service were outside. The two of them were at the Little Champ convenience store to pick up the cash deposit from the business, but also stated the door was locked. They also noticed a small amount of blood on the exterior lock assembly of the door. They then tried to call the store phone, but no one answered. They also found a white Honda parked at the store and found that it belonged to Terry. They then tried to call his home, but the calls went unanswered. A little champ employee who lived nearby happened to drive past and saw the growing police presence. He had closed the store the night before and provided deputies with a key to get inside. Upon entering the store, they would tragically find Terry stabbed to death in the bathroom. It appeared that Terry had been killed just before 6 a.m. before preparing to open the store. Investigators found blood all over the scene, including blood from someone other than Terry. The blood pattern was consistent with the killer injuring himself during the violent attack and walking around the store as his wounds bled. They would also find that Terry's killer stole about $1,000 from the store's safe before taking Terry's keys and locking the front door as he left. With little to no leads in the case, it would go unsolved for the next 25 years. In 2003, DNA from the crime scene was entered into CODIS, but no matches were found. In 2019, a cold case unit at the sheriff's office was formed and investigators began re-examining Terry's death. In 2021, the DNA was sent to Othram, and a profile suitable for genetic genealogy was created. This led investigators to 54-year-old Kenneth Robert Stowe, Jr., who had previously worked at the store and lived across the street in 1996. All investigators needed now was Stowe's DNA, so they tracked him to a Sitco gas station in Lake County, where he got out of his vehicle and tossed a plastic bag in the dumpster. He then re-entered his vehicle and drove away. When investigators retrieved the bag, 
they found seven Budweiser beer cans. Those cans were later swabbed for DNA and matched the DNA from the crime scene. Stowe was arrested and charged with first-degree murder with a firearm and robbery with a deadly weapon. Stowe admitted to working at the store, but to this day has never confessed to the crime. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.